and we're live. Uh, welcome, everybody, to episode 10 of the Redesign Growth Podcast. I'm your host, Sritvik Gautam, and I'm joined by one of my co-founders and good friends, Tim, as my co-host. Uh, I'm excited because, first of all, we made it to the 10-episode benchmark, which is, you know, at least good. And also, I was chatting with our guest, who I'll introduce shortly, about uh, the fact that our first episode had 10 attendees and now we're at 150. So clearly we're progressing in the right direction and I'm really thankful to all of our listeners for tuning into this. That being said, episode 10, we're doing it in style. We're joined by Darren Hood, he's a good friend of mine and he is, in a word, I'd say a prolific uh, UXer. Uh, he, has, he has served as uh, adjunct professor in in several different uh, in several different universities to teach uh, teaching human computer interaction as well as had like a storied UX career. You might know him from his epic takedowns of trolls on LinkedIn. Uh, so uh, Darren, I I can't do I can't do justice to an intro. So I'm gonna tee it up to you. Uh, why don't you tell everybody a little bit about yourself and uh, how you got to where you are today? Sure thing. Uh, thanks, Rhett. Thanks, Tim. For having me, I believe it's the third time I've been on uh, some type of a, uh, either speaking yeah. for for folks at Trimata or joining you for some type of event like this. For thanks, thanks for thinking of me and for having me uh, today. As you know, I love to share. Uh, for those that might not be familiar with me, uh, again, my name is Darren Hood. Uh, I am this year. I'm celebrating 28 years uh, in the discipline, and, uh, and you just mentioned my epic takedowns of trolls. I want to spend a moment uh, addressing the trolls who come at me and say, what do you mean 28 years? It wasn't called UX 28 years ago. I know that and I say it all the time. What's your angle? <laughs> so it, it's it's uh, the thing that we now know as UX. Um, I'm still doing the same thing that I did in 1995. I'm still doing information architecture. I'm still doing usability testing. I'm still measuring cognitive load and trying to optimize the, the designs and make sure things are intuitive. So yes, I'm doing the same exact thing that I did in 1995. So I'm claiming it. I didn't used to claim it and a bunch of people are lying about it. So might as well claim it. The, uh, I, I, uh, <laughs> I've worked everywhere, all over the landscape, all the way up to fortune 50. So I've been in enterprise. I've been in pseudo startups. Uh, I've worked at top financial organizations, top FinTech, top med tech, uh, automotive. I've been sort of kind of everywhere. So I'm, I'm, I'm happy about what I've been able to do. I love the discipline. I currently teach at five universities, uh, UCLA, Michigan State, wow. um, uh, Lawrence Tech University, Kent State University, Brandeis University, always teaching things related to user experience. Uh, I actually had an international university reach out to me. I might be going international uh, very soon and waiting to, waiting to go through talks and that and see how that plays out and trying not to over inundate myself because there's, right. a, there's a lot going on. But from a background perspective, I love sharing this and I'm sharing it more and more. I was self-taught. Wow. I, I was self-taught when I got my first UX job, my first full-time UX job. And when I was doing it part-time during the day, it was when I was self-taught uh, and I didn't go to school, contrary to some popular belief that somebody decided to start spreading. Uh, I didn't go to school to learn UX. I went to school to do what I like to call the quintessential ethnographic study so that I could learn more about what was going on in academia and potentially fill some gaps along the way. And I ended up getting a master's, a UX-related master's degree from Syracuse University, a UX master's degree from Kent State University, uh, a grad certain educational technology from Michigan State, and I'm currently a doctoral candidate at North Central University in educational leadership. 
So that's, that's awesome. me. Podcasting. I've been offering 97 things. Every UX practitioner should know. I'm sort of kind of everywhere. Yeah. Uh, Darren, uh, you know, I of comparable experience, I have a bachelor's in philosophy. Uh, that's, that's, but that's cool. Uh, yeah. But I, so I think I think, you know, th this podcast is called Redesign Growth. And, and, and like our, our purpose was like, hey, if we talk to enough intelligent people, uh, can we eventually understand? Like, especially for you, it's interesting because you have like a cross-sectional view, not only of like a variety of different types of companies, but also a variety of different types of like academic institutions. Yeah. Um, and there's this there's this idea, right, of like better product results in in like better growth. Like at least at least if I say that as a statement, prima facie, it seems true. But but when we get into the weeds of like how does how does like product experience and product design actually drive growth? Uh, People have like a variety of different answers. They're not all the same and they're not all always right. So what I would love from you is sort of from your experience, how have you viewed the relationship between design and growth? The relationship between design and growth starts in the non-design arena. It starts with the business mm -hmm. and it goes back to uh, anybody who went to college and you might have taken this course in high school. It starts with economics. Right. If there's no money, you will not have a job or you'll have a job and you won't get paid. So preferably we like to have a job and get paid. Right. So that means that it does tie back to money. And the old adage from your intro to econ, that class that many of us love to hate. Yeah. Uh, but there was a truth that we need to embrace. And, and more and more UXers need to have a stronger business mindset as well, which is something that's sort of lacking mm -hmm. in our in our annals today. But the mindset is that there's supply and there's demand. Right. Anytime there is a demand, somebody needs to provide the supply. And if you want to grow from a business standpoint, then you're going to come up with solutions that are going to meet that demand. And those are the companies that have risen to the top, your Fortune 500, your Fortune 100, whatever it is. They have supplied something that is demanded by our society and they're charging X amount to provide that service, that solution, that resource, whatever it might be. That's right. where things begin. Now, every solution has to be designed. Some of those are digital. Mm -hmm. Some of those are not. And contrary to popular belief, and I think some people are starting to learn this, UX is not limited to digital design. Right. So there's a lot of things that, that can be done. Uh, even when you get into the industrial design, UX does cross into that arena. Of course. Uh, so you've got human computer interaction, you got industrial design, you got digital design, then you have the experience design as a whole. There's a lot mm -hmm. that happens from a design perspective. And the more that we learn as UX professionals about how to meet those needs and the philosophies, the the methods, the methodologies, the techniques, and the associated deliverables to help support the design efforts, we can help our organizations, our teams our reputations, our brands to grow. That's the connection between that, the two. I, I think that's a that's a great answer. And I, and and for me, right, well, something that's made me meditate on this connection more recently is uh, with the recent spate of like tech layoffs. There was like a general culling that happened, right? <laughs> I noticed that there was a trend that oftentimes like UX teams and like design teams were like the first like the first on the chopping block, right? And and that to me was it's telling because 
I mean, we're in the business of like selling a research solution to yeah. to like UX researchers and UX designers, and and there's the sense that this is this is critical. This is critical for the success of a product, for success of a business. But when like when the rubber hits the road, like when you know when there when there's like time to tighten the belt, why is this? the the section that gets cut off in your opinion is it because like there's a mismatch in terms of what what they need to be giving the company and what they're actually doing or like what why what's your take on this interesting question i love this question um you've probably heard this before tim i don't know if you've heard this before but i entered ux full-time basically through the doorway of instructional design that's what i was i had a bunch of instructional design certifications i used to sit on the advisory board for Captivate mm-hmm. when Macromedia and Adobe were separate. I've done a lot of work in that arena. Right. And one of the reasons that I made the jump, not only did I reassess who I was and realized, mm-hmm. I think at the time, information architecture, I love this. I think I'm more, I think I'm a better fit there. You know, I love instructional design. I love training. But not only do I think I belong over here, I don't like what I see that's happening over here in instructional design, what was happening? The organizations didn't understand you. This is going to start to sound familiar real quick. Right. Organizations didn't understand instructional design. They didn't understand the importance of training and instructional or training, which is the product of instructional designers. They didn't understand the connection between the two and the science behind the instructional design or the science behind the training. They didn't understand it, so they started to sort of discount, uh, trivialize the contributions that the trainers, the instructional designers were making to the organizations and how they were impacting the bottom line of the organizations. Right. There was a huge technological shift mm-hmm. in, in the instructional design world because web-based training, because of the internet and such, web-based training. I mean, we're going all the way back to like 2001, 2002 here. Right. The web-based training was starting to take off. Computer-based training was starting to really ramp up. And But there were a lot of people who had been doing instructional design for years that were threatened by this new technology, this new approach to training. But what I saw was companies that don't understand, they're starting to let, they don't understand, so they let their, the trainers go because they thought they could afford to. Right. And at the same time, because they don't understand, they thought that anybody could do the work. Again, sound familiar? They thought anybody could do the work. Oh, anybody can do training. Just go put together a PowerPoint. You can just read off of it, yada, yada, yada. So I saw the shifts taking place, and the discipline was under siege. They started to to reduce the salaries. They started to have unqualified people doing the work. Hence, they start to bring less value. And then organization leadership didn't understand it anyway. So when the time came to cut corners, the first people to let, get let go were trainers. Does that all sound familiar? Mm-hmm. It's yeah. the exact same thing that's happening in UX today. I said it was going to happen. I, I, I started saying that there was a siege, that UX was under siege in about 2011, 2012. Companies were, the gold rush was taking place and everybody was running to get UX jobs. Companies heard about the, for every dollar you invest, you get $100, $250 in return, and they right. wanted their piece of that pie, but they never got educated about UX. They just started launching UX practices at their companies without any education, without hiring the right people to run it. The same thing that was happening that I saw 
and I wasn't invested in instructional mm-hmm. design, so I didn't stay and fight that battle. I, and and I, I had a love for this, so I came over here. Sure. The same exact thing is happening over here. Mm-hmm. Companies don't understand what UX is. They hire the wrong people to lead the charge. They think anybody can do the work, so they hire anybody to do the work. Consequently, right. no value is brought. The design isn't generating the growth. And so when the time comes to cut corners, who gets let go? Mm-hmm. You know, this one unnamed company who had over 900 people on their UX team, they, but they were hiring all kinds of wrong hiring. I interviewed there once. I got to see it firsthand inside. I'm going, wait a minute. Why does this team, why are they doing this? Why are they doing that? Why are our developers who know nothing about UX operating as managers? Why are people that I knew firsthand that I worked with in the past that all they know is how to say UX, why are they getting staff level positions in UX at this company? And eventually, and they were the first of the big tech, uh, uh, of the companies with the big tech layoffs, they laid off a third of their UX team. Yeah. And then so, right after that, you know, it explodes. That's why. So let me, let me, let me actually ask you uh, like a, a quick, a quick follow. So I think, I think, you know, it's, it's pretty prescient, like what you said about like, you know, what was happening with information design and, and like, you know, sort of the, the sort of de-emphasis on, on the discipline and like it being, being like uh reinterpreted as anyone can do this and the similarities with 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 ux right uh and oh, and now you're 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 able to look at uh you're able to look at it today and be like okay i i understand that like these guys are messing up like whatever this company with 900 designers and like all <laughs> kinds of but what what's important to get it right like how do you get it right if you're building a ux practice from day one and the reason i ask this is because as a startup, right? Like when, when I started this company, uh, we were just two people. It was me and Tim, right? And and so, and we frankly did not have the money to hire a designer, right? Like it's not that we would not have if we could have. And and so there, like ev- everyone can design. It's not that everyone can design well or everyone's a UX designer or thing, but, but yeah. you, you know, uh, so at what point do you start like putting in like the guardrails or like this, this structure to not mess up so badly down the road. And what does that structure look like in your opinion? People need to always be in the business. And this is probably an EQ piece. It is an EQ piece. Uh-huh. Uh, one of the biggest components of, of, of emotional intelligence is self-awareness. Yeah. And sometimes self-awareness has to be a deliberate exercise. Right. Personally, I hunt for what I don't know. Mm-hmm. I want to know what I don't know. And then when I do find out something an area where I want to grow or something that I don't have any expertise in or something I, where I know I need to build some acumen, I want to find out. Mm-hmm. Companies need to do the same thing. Self-awareness doesn't have to be uh, a happenstance experience where you find out about a blind spot because something happened. Why experience something that's tragic or on the road to tragedy to make a change. Why not be more forthright and deliberate? And so companies need to find out what they don't know. What can we do to be better? What can we do to achieve better success? What can we do to build a better culture? What can we do to do to hire in a more constructive, realistic, and beneficial manner? They have to be on the on the lookout for these things. And because you we don't know what we don't know. So go find out. Right. Expose yourself to people who might know so that they can help you make those blind spot discoveries because if you want to make some 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 leap, grow by leaps and bounds, 
Mm-hmm. Make that kind of discovery because the thing you don't, what you don't know will hurt you. And it could hurt you in a way that you may not know you're being hurt. So it has to be deliberate. Understood. So I, I think I think for me, right, like uh, coming back to like the relationship between between design and growth, there's there's obviously some use cases where it's extremely apparent, right? Like where where it's just it's an actual like PLG motion, right? Where where like there's no sales interaction, there's all there's no human interaction with with the customer. Like the product drives the revenue, the product drives adoption, the product drives, and and so there like uh, the 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 feeling like the presence of design and the presence of like building an in, uh, a user experience with with intention is is very noticeable but you've also worked at companies right like uh like like bosch and 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 like you know companies with hardware and things like that where the the structure is different um yeah. so in in institutions like those how do you, how does the relationship like it, it, it to me it's less obvious right like the the relationship between design and growth in those kind of institutions so if you could enlighten me a little bit that, that would be awesome Oh, wow. Um, those types of discoveries, when I sort of go through the Rolodex in my in my mind of where I've been in the past, mm-hmm. there's usually some type of awareness. <clears throat> Excuse me. Some type of awareness. If we can, again, knowing the supply and demand factor, I usually see it at work. Knowing mm-hmm. that if we roll out this product or we improve on this product, we can we can improve our competitive advantage or we can drive some type of a success. There's usually Mm -hmm. some type of understanding of that. And then companies have to labor to get people in the right place to do it. Uh, At Bosch, it was, I mean, Bosch does so much. Right. There's all these, all these brands under the umbrella. We're driving profit there. There's these handheld tools. There's these diagnostic tools. I mean, there was so much that was going on. And that was one company I really got to give them, give them a, a, a pat on the back for how, the, how deliberate they were in trying to make effort, especially from a UX perspective, because when I came there and I used to be the manager at automotive aftermarket, there right. was no UX practice, not in the States or nobody actually spearheading that. And so I built oh. that from the ground up yeah. and I mean, 385,000 employees at the time, a fraction of them were in automotive aftermarket. And I love what they set up. They they set me up for success. Right. Especially my boss. My boss at the time was the best boss I ever had in my career. And he just, he knew what was going on. He knew who the players were. He brought in somebody like me who knew, because you can't just come in. If, if, if Figma was a big thing back then, you can't just come through the door with Figma and impact anything. Right. That's, that's a losing proposition across the board. He knew that I had the business experience. I've been in corporate America since 1982. Right. I just, I just told my age for those who don't know. So the uh, I, I had the business acumen. I had the I had a, I have a sales background. I have a customer service background. There was there was a whole a, a lot more that was going to come into play to help drive that success. But the success wasn't accomplished through traditional UX measures. It was accomplished through building relationships. And coming into an arena where you're working with engineers mm-hmm. who feel that we've always done it this way, we don't need you, and then convincing them that going in this direction of incorporating human-centered design principles and UX design strategies into the work to help drive the growth of the business. And we were they said it was the best run division, UX division in the in the company. 
at that time. We did some great things that we went with the engineers from we always we always done it this way. We don't need you to right. where's Darren? Darren is not in this meeting. Nobody invited Darren. Why isn't Darren here? Let's find Darren. It, it became a thing where I had to be present. And, and that's what companies have to do. You have to have people who are willing to engage in the in the relationship building. Mm-hmm. And you have to be willing to on on the business side of things, on the the HR, the personnel side of things, and then the UX personnel have to be somebody who's willing to has the patience and the skill to navigate all of these things. I hope I answered that. No, I, th- I think I think I would actually. I, I'd love to explore this a little more because I I, I want to contrast. You were talking before about companies that that hire the UX people but don't actually have a UX mindset. So they're not actually getting the benefit from that. Now you're talking about Bosch brought you on, they didn't have a UX practice, but they hired you and and they didn't do the wrong thing where they just brought someone on, but didn't listen or didn't apply it. They they actually allowed you to do that work. So what was the difference there? Was it that that one boss and and he had that mindset of of knowing what he didn't know or what what was, because I I think the lesson here is what can other companies do to be like Bosch instead of like the ones we were talking about earlier? Yes, that's great. Yeah, my boss, he was not a UXer, ironically. Uh But he knew, again, he knew what he didn't know. That's a really empowering mindset to make sure that you know what you don't know and then know your limitations and then operate from a perspective of wisdom in conjunction with your limitations. <clears throat> he knew that I knew what he didn't. He let me know what needed to be done and got out of my way. That's why we were successful. The flip side of that, to Tim's point, companies today, they know they need a UX practice. They know how it can impact the business. They know how it can foster growth. And then they start off right at the bat. They don't begin by understanding what they don't know. Some of them are in Dunning-Kruger mode. They're 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 too proud to not admit what they don't know. And then they start off. It's a doomed uh, process right from the beginning because they hire people. Oh, you know, I think the hottest, this person is a, a, a former creative director. They can lead UX. Those are creative directors and art directors are two of the biggest enemies of UX. Sorry, former creative directors, <laughs> and art directors out there, but they're the biggest enemy. I have seen them do more damage over my career, trying to run UX operations. And they always like to either bring in a bunch of people that think exactly like them because they're scared to bring anybody like me. Somebody like me is not going to get hired. Sounds like antithetical to creativity. If you have- <laughs> <laughs> it's insane. They don't understand UX. They don't, want, they don't know anything about the history. They know nothing about the tenets or the pillars. They know nothing about how you succeed in building UX operations. They know nothing about UX maturity, but because... They had a background in art. You think that they're going to run your UX department? Most companies fail, which was a major part of the big layoffs. Because if you look closely at a lot of the layoffs, the vast majority of the layoffs, those they were done in a lot of organizations that engaged in a lot of premature hiring, a lot of misdirected hiring, and a lot of them were making up for their hiring foibles. Quite right. frankly, a lot of them were. So you got to you got to know you got to hire somebody who can actually get the work done. There's actually been massive discrimination against people at the high senior level in UX for over a decade. Mm-hmm. It's been going on for a long time. I got, I got a, a thanks but no thanks letter once from a company, <clears throat> excuse me, and they said, uh, yeah, we we were really impressed with your background. 
oh, but uh, we decide not to move forward. You're just not a fit at this time. How in the world does somebody that knows the discipline, like the back of their hand, not a fit? Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, does that mean are you in in are you purposely hiring incapable people? What are you planning on? What are you planning on? And I know I've seen these situations and then see who they hire. And it's a joke. It hurts you folks. You're trying to sell a solution. These folks don't want to look at a solution that's going to get the job done. They want to, they want to go for whatever is pretty and popular and, and, and things of that nature, but not necessarily what's going to get the work done. Cause they're not really, they don't really care about getting work done. They just want to check. Mm-hmm. So when you, you have somebody running the department that doesn't know what's going on, hiring other people that don't really care about what's going on, but just want to get paid. How are you supposed to benefit? And, and right. then it detrimentally impacts the UX brand in the organization. It keeps going down and down and down. It's a losing proposition. If you're in a company like that, if you haven't already sent your resume out, you should because you're not going to have the opportunity to really excel. But unfortunately, it's like that uh, pretty broadly across a lot of the UX landscape today. So so then what, what would you say then is is your take on I think this notion that's that's kind of growing in 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 the zeitgeist, like UX zeitgeist, of like democratization ah. of research and democratization of insight, right? Like, and I and I know there's just like strong proponents, uh, proponents, and strong. <laughs> Did you just have a sound effect ready to go? <laughs> uh, but look, see, there's like strong proponents for this stuff, right? Like, and then there's strong detractors, and. Uh, the sound effect tells me that you're here detracting, but like I, I want to understand like how how does how does a thought process like that? Because what I will say is is I don't think it's just it's like idiots all the way down, right? Like I'm 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 not I'm not at sitting. Exactly. I feel I feel like people take like it's it's like just an alignment. It's like maybe like a bunch of really smart people working towards like the wrong goal. And and like yeah. the thing is, really smart people can work towards any goal, right or wrong. Right? Like that's that. So so I want to understand, like, what, what is your take on democratization of U, UX research, right? Like, uh, is that is is it is it an absolute no go? Is it a must, or is there is the truth somewhere in between? Like, how how do you get an organization UX minded, but not like cause clutter to <laughs> like the research practice? I say, and I'm going to take one step back to address something else you said there. To try to, I'm going to pinpoint this. There's uh-huh. a lot of smart people. Yeah. But they're not smart enough to realize that smart isn't enough. Interesting. Um, I've come across a lot of, and this is going to, I hope this doesn't get you a, a lot of flack. There's a lot of smart cowards too. And, yeah. and one of the worst things that has happened to UX is the degree of cowardice in the discipline. Nobody wants to take a stand for anything. Everybody wants to make everybody feel great, which is funny because you can't be politically correct and succeed at UX. Mm-hmm. Not really. If you're willing to make everybody feel good and you're going to Pollyanna everything, uh, you want to find the good in everything, so you're ignoring that nail in your tire. There's a nail in your tire. Hey, but it looks so great. But there's a nail in your tire. Oh, but it looks great. And if you get on the freeway with that nail in your tire, it this could become a life-threatening situation. Oh, but the car looks so great. No, there's a nail in your tire. So that cowardice, which is a actual EQ red flag, is a detriment to the discipline. One of the reasons we don't have standards <clears throat> today that everybody will accept is because a lot of people are afraid 
to tell people what the standards are. I'm not one of those cowards. I'm not, I'm not part of the coward camp at all. So I'm going to keep telling you, we need this. This is what UX is. This is what it is not. And when it comes to democratization, democratization, there's two problems, two main problems. Number one, the original definition got tainted somewhere because democratization, democratization never meant everybody should be doing this. Democratization initially was about us coming together to synthesize data. It had nothing to do with, with John and Timmy and Sue and, and, and these other people doing helping you with research because you didn't have enough people. That's yeah, you hear that, Tim? Never what democratization was originally intended to be. So as a lot of people who lack critical thinking often do, they hear something, generalize it, oversimplify it, and now you got people trying to all get involved to help you out with the research because you don't have enough people. Oh, yeah. And there's this other factor that goes along with cowardice. It's called slowfulness, a.k.a. laziness. So you got a lot of people coming in the UX and they're actually lazy. That's why they try to microwave everything. So mm. those two things, it's like you anybody remember when you were a kid or that old house down south that would have the you had the tattered house with the screens and the screen always had a hole in it and the flies are always coming in and the spiders and everything else. That's what we've got. So we've got these old tattered houses with holes everywhere in the screens. And, and I'm running around trying to close them up. Democracy, mm -hmm. everybody should not be doing the work. This is an ex, this is a science that requires expertise in order to optimize delivery. Mm -hmm. Not a not this is not the land of the of the the present the uh the participation trophy, or like when I played little league baseball on the team where everybody got to bat, including people who didn't know how to hit, couldn't hit a baseball. If it was as big, big as a beach ball, they still couldn't hit it. Right. And then everybody gets, a, you know, everybody plays this in the soccer, uh, in the youth soccer league. And every at, we just got beat 18 to nothing, but we're going to go and celebrate and have some pizza and some ice cream. This is the same mentality that has crept in. Excellence is like not even on a lot of people's radars. And that's what's going to happen when you democratize. There's all, as you said, everybody designs, there's always going to be results, but are they good results? And then that's why they fight against people like me, because we're the people that'll say, this wasn't a good way to do that. There's right. a better, we could have done this better. We could have approached this with a different strategy. They don't want to hear that. So they just don't even bring people like me on their teams because they don't want to be told. They don't want to be told that their baby is ugly, that they have a nail in the tire or that they have a booger in their nose, quite frankly. Right. Uh, so, so, <laughs> so that's that's a good way to put it. So I, I think I think for for me though, like like I for for us our tool, right? Like a a, a month or like a notion that we have is and, and like you know the the reason we 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 provide the services we do like usability testing because we're like dude, ask the use the, the proof of the pudding's in the eating. Like you build something, put it in front of your user test it and you'll get feedback, right? And there's this notion of UX debt, which is like, hey man, if you're not checking yourself at every stage, you're yeah. gonna push something out that's live and it's dog shit. And then you're gonna have to spend <laughs> exponentially more effort fixing this thing, right? Yep. Uh, but but in terms of like, internally within an organization, you know, you, uh, I, I, I like this notion of excellence and I'm actually gonna put a put, put like this comment up. Uh, a commenter said, excellence hey, requires tension right um so i i think i think there's this notion of of striving for excellence 
but oftentimes, right, like that is not an objective definition, right? Like there's no like, hey, man, the, this is excellent. And oftentimes, like what, what it means to excel in an organization is uh, defined by stakeholders. It's defined by like, you know, whatever, like sometimes bureaucratic methods. It's sometimes defined by objective things or, or like just like a super evolved end goal, which is like revenue. Hey man, if it doesn't move the needle of revenue, don't talk to me. It's not excellent. Right. Like, and, and that, and that might be, that might be a little, uh, uh, not, like too narrow, like you're too myopic as a, as a definition. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm, I'm keen to know, like when you think about excellence and you think about like, like design excellence or, or even like, re, uh, like UX research excellence, like what does that look like for you? If I'm like, Hey, I want to, Darren, I want to, I want to be a designer that strives for excellence. What is your advice to me? There's three different things that come to mind uh, because if we're going to excel as a user experience, can you folks hear me? Okay. Am I coming through? Okay. There. Yeah. Okay, good. Um, there from the business side, we need to understand KPIs and OKRs. When we understand that that's the excellence that's coming from the business side. And we need to make sure we're digesting that we understand those things that we're communicating in a way that, that helps the business helps achieve the goals associated with that. On the design side of the house, there's making sure that we are aligned with the business with regard to those OKRs, those KPIs, different business goals. But also on the design side, there's different aspects of heuristics. So it's not subjective, or I'm sorry, different aspects of excellence. So it's not subjective. One of them is by using heuristics. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of design principles. There's certain things that we know that we should be striving for, you know, how intuitive is the experience? How, right. how easy is it for people to understand? Uh, have we, have we, when we, when we conduct research, that's one of the ways that we confirm that we've been excellent in our execution. Have we done things in a way that we're meeting the user needs, the business needs? Are we hitting that sweet spot in the Venn diagram? Basically mm-hmm. that's excellent. Excellence is a thing that we can agree upon and make mm-hmm. sure that we're shooting for it. Uh, it. When excellence becomes subjective, which is interesting because a lot of people are endorsing anarchy in UX, and they're trying to make design this anarchical type of an experience, when in fact that actually will detract from the value, and then you end up getting laid off. So the... <laughs> Uh, we've got to we've got to have that business side. <coughs> it's funny, and I mentioned heuristics. A lot of people involved in UX they have no appetite for heuristics, no understanding of heuristics. I even saw a post recently where they said heuristics need to be need to be upgraded. No, they don't. The people need to be upgraded. Heuristics are fine. Heuristics upgrade on their own. They upgrade. We go study Nielsen. We study Nielsen first because that's what everybody says. But truth mm-hmm. be told, Nielsen's heuristics were designed before the internet and they never really got upgraded. So, and I've also found it's difficult to communicate with stakeholders about Nielsen's heuristics. There, right. That's not the only heuristics model. Uh, there's Susan Weinshake and Dean Barker. There's John Hutchins. There's, there's Abby Covert and Tug. And then Abby Covert has since updated that. And I find those to be the four main types of heuristics you can use. And I use them simultaneously. I don't just use one. And I, if, if you were to just use one, I'd say use Abby Covert. It says information architecture heuristics, but it's applicable everywhere. And it's the only one that has a model telling you how to apply the heuristics and use mm-hmm. them to evaluate the work. 
this is where we can we can be excellent. We can ensure that we're roll, and it should inform the design or even help with the redesign. And you can find up to 90% of what's wrong with the design through heuristics alone. I don't know why people won't put this in their toolbox because it's too powerful. So that's how we achieve excellence. And excellence, as I said in my TED talk, excellence is a garrison. If you right. want to garrison your own operation, your own personal operation, your goals, whatever you're doing from a business standpoint, from a UX operation, embrace excellence and you'll find even when people might not like you as a person, they love excellence. And that's how you can barrel past all the garbage that's out here. Right. So so I'm 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 curious, right? Like if like on on I and I devil's advocate and you might say, dude, I don't think the devil needs an advocate. And I, I get that, but but like what what do you say to the people? They're like, hey, hey Darren, you're just you're trying to build a walled city. Or you're trying to build like you know, you're trying to build some glass ceilings just just cause, <laughs> right? Or or you're trying to create rare air. Because, uh, like, you know, that, that has thematically come up on your, on, uh, like, you know, on the posts you make about this stuff, there, there's the people that agree with you wholeheartedly. But then there's also these people that are like, man, you're just, you're just trying to, you're just trying to stratify too much. You're trying to build some rare air. Like, wh what is, what is your rejoinder to them? Like, is, you know. Um, it's easy. <laughs> like, all right. Grow what up. Is grow up. <laughs> this, this, this is an adult. This is an area for the adults. Uh-huh. <laughs> and we, we I mean I had to do the same thing. And and I'm where I am because I did. Right. So, I'm trying to help other people understand the importance of it for their own personal well-being but also for the good of the discipline because truth be told, we're only roughly 20 years old as a discipline in the main in the mainstream. Right. Of the corporate the uh of the business world and whenever we come into a meeting, we're the baby. We're the only discipline that comes into a meeting that nobody understands. Mm -hmm. We're the only discipline that comes in a room that everybody wants to democratize our work. Right. The only discipline. Nobody's democratizing product ownership. Nobody's democratizing development and engineering. Nobody's nobody's democratizing QA work. Nobody's democratizing the, the C-suite's job. The only people that want that call for democratization is folks in the UX arena. And it's usually the, the UXers that support it are usually lazy people, as I mentioned earlier, who want somebody else to do their job. I'm not interested in anybody else doing my job. And you can't do my job. All right. <laughs> and personally, I have the history of uh, the reputation of doing the work of three, four, or five people. Right. I dig that hard. Now, so the question is, you want to go with me? This is how you do it. If, you, if you're not that much of a high achiever, and everybody's not, I get it. If everybody's not, that's fine. But if you don't want to be a high achiever, at least do enough to show that you're going to bring value. You're going to have to have some level of passion. And remember, every single one of us is an ambassador for this discipline. So anybody who misrepresents it hurts all of us. We either help all of us or we hurt all of us simultaneously. And so when I stand and call for excellence and then the people come into my feed or on Twitter or wherever and they make these detracting comments, they're not just aiming at me. They're aiming at the discipline because I'm just standing for the excellence of the discipline and trying to get other people to subscribe to it. That's all I'm doing. This is not about Darren Hood. I'm going to retire in about 10 years. I'll be gone. I'm not even fighting for me. So people need to understand that. And the more mature people, the more emotionally intelligent people will. That's not a slam against anybody. It's just the just the fact of the matter. Yeah. And, and uh, that's it. And when I retire, I'll just be sitting somewhere 
off in academia laughing at what's going on. I told you, told you, told you. And I've been doing that for years. I told people that UX was under siege in, in um, 2011, 2012. They told me to shut up. You're crazy. Why are you talking about that? That's the same thing you just mentioned, Grit. Yeah. That's the same thing. In 2023, where are we? Under siege. We're underwater now. Mm-hmm. We're more than under siege. Non-UXers are running teams. Boot camps are going crazy. So I, wanna, I actually want to talk about the boot camps. Uh, and and like ed, like UX, I, I guess like, you know, UX education. So you mentioned yeah. earlier on that, you know, you were self-taught and then and then you kind of got into the uh, like, you know, the, the academia side of things. And uh, I think I think like the boot camp or, or the the idea of the boot camp is just like, hey, man, I don't have like four year degree time or four year <laughs> degree money, but I I kind of want to do this. Right. And and uh, like people think of it as maybe like a bridge between self, like self-taught and like full on academia. Right. Uh, but but to, to, I think and I, I think a lot of your critique of it is the way these guys are going about it or or the things that they're promising is they're promising yeah. the value of the four year degree. Um, but like in super truncated time is so is is. Like at what point do you get okay with the boot camp? Is it is it is it if they if they start if they start like like reducing the expectations? Are they like, hey man, look, this isn't that like this is not going to be a degree in human computer interaction. But what this will do is it's like self taught with like it's like self taught plus plus. Are you down to do that? Like at that juncture, would you be like, hey, that's an adequate disclaimer. Boot camps are fine. Or no, like okay, so what is what is should there be boot camps at all? And if if so, what should they look like? Um, that's a great question. Um, boot in order for boot camps to be relevant, because they are, I don't know any that say that it's equivalent to a four-year degree. I never heard anybody say that. I would just be on the floor literally laughing if somebody <laughs> said that. Um, they do, to my understanding, they do offer it as a go-between. Right. Well, well, they don't say that, but they say stuff like this is everything yeah. you need to get started with a career. In, like, yeah, right. They like, which you'll be job ready in six months. No, right. you won't. Now, a lot of people who graduated from boot camps and gotten jobs, I told you, I was not ready for this, which means that what they what they taught you didn't prepare you. Mm-hmm. So now you've got to while the train is moving. You have to try to switch cars. That that's tough. And yeah. and a lot of people, you hear people talking about the headaches associated with that. In order for boot camps to become um a reliable resource, they have to blow the whole thing up. I had I actually talked about this on my podcast, uh, uh two episodes called the UX Bootcamp Bruhaha. They've got to blow the whole thing up because from an ed- the educational science, the approach from a scientific perspective is wrong. They have the wrong content. Everything is very surface level. That's not education. To scratch the surface on something and then come away and drop the microphone, that's that's laughable. That, but that's what they're doing. A lot of them, they say that we've got the best teachers. And they're lying. Most times, as a matter of fact, a lot of the teachers graduated last week. Is that going to come up in class? No, but some of us know for a fact that that's what they're doing. We won't even get into the parade of lies. Anybody in any business 
that makes a proposition, a value proposition that is not only inaccurate, but they're knowingly inaccurate. That's actually, that's actually tort liable or that, that's a, you, you, they can be sued and some of them are being sued. Some of the boot camps are being sued. They're being labeled, they're predatory. Mm-hmm. That's a problem because they know that people want to learn. So they try to offer you a solution that's, that's overpriced, grossly overpriced, which is another sign that they're taking advantage of people's zeal. Because the people signing up, they just don't, they don't know. I'm not faulting them. They don't know. There's no way for right. them to know. They, so we're not talking about that at all. We're trying to say that there's 50 nails in those tires and that vehicle isn't going to get anywhere. Right. And, and, and nobody can say, okay, well, I know these five people that graduated and they're successful. I guarantee you they're successful because of their own personal traits and not because of where they went from. The vehicle yeah. still has 50 nails in the tires. So the so only way that's, to- that's a, that's a good olive branch to extend, right? Cause I, I, I do notice that like, Anytime you talk about boot camps, right, and and like the the problem with boot camps, there's people that understandably, right, like they invested money, they invested time in these yep. boot camps, and they graduated and they're working in the discipline, right, and and they feel like they're adding value. And I guess like the olive branch is like, hey man, I don't doubt that you're succeeding where you are, but it the odds that it's because you did this boot camp is slim to none. Right. Yeah. Like it's because you you went beyond that. Is that sort of where you're at? Like, it's like, hey, man, yeah. like I, I, I don't doubt that. I'm not like anyone that graduated a boot camp is dog shit. Like, that's not that's not it. It's it's the, yeah. the, the value added the boot camp. The boot camp wasn't it. Like you were just determined to go to UX. Is that is that what you're saying? Yeah. Like, and, and you just remind me of a conversation I had with someone recently too. graduated from a boot camp. And he said, yeah, I said, yeah, if this is the boot camp where they're going to, you don't have to pay them until you get a job, then they're going to take a deduction out of your paycheck. That sounds good until they start taking money out of your paycheck. So yeah. you don't want to start doing that, number one. He said, well, I had success. He might even be on the call. He said, I might, uh, he said, I had success um, it, because I started out here and my salary doubled in a year. And my response to him was, enjoy it. While you can, because nobody goes from 60,000, just throw some general numbers to illustrate, nobody goes from 60,000 to 110,000 in a year in UX. They're going to get you. It's a matter of time. We, You have to work in order to get $100,000 starting salary. Let me back up in the Midwest for UXers back in the mid to late, like 2000. Five to 2010, actually, and it still remained roughly the same, is somewhere in the vicinity of 70 to $78,000 in the Midwest. For an entry level, you start at that. You do not get $100,000, not by a company that knows what they're doing. You don't get $100,000 until you get at least uh, six, seven, eight years. You don't get six figures. I've heard stories about people getting paid $180,000 a year for an entry-level position. That company that hired them did not know what they were doing. And eventually they will find out and you will, they will come after you. Yeah, and so, I think you're touching you know, up on something really interesting. Pretty bad. Because I think you're touching up on something really interesting here because that's, I mean, if you have like this inflation, like inflated value of talent, uh, a normalizing factor is like the layoffs or like, you know, like the, the tough times, the tech market, like that's where like all of these values come like 
get, like readjust essentially, right? Uh, like things won't stay. Your point is like things won't stay inflated perpetually, and and like that, and 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 an event like that is what like causes an adjust uh, adjustment. Yep. And that's part um, of what we're going through right now with all these layoffs. Some of them are legitimate layoffs that there had to be some rearranging and some things happening. A bunch of it is copycat. One company go, oh, we need to do that too, and then they go to their to their shareholders. Look at the value that we so they're all playing this game, and the people are the chess pieces. But a lot of it is people trying to make up for where they messed up. Yep. Uh, so so we're we're like nearing the end of our podcast. We have uh, another like five ten minutes. So I I, I really want to, <laughs> and we always end up doing this right. Like because right now everyone's talking about. Uh, generative AI, the use cases of generative yeah. AI, the pitfalls therein, um, and I, I think, to me, like generative AI is just like a really, really powerful calculator. Like that's like <laughs> that's about it. Like anything, like anyone that sees it as anything more than is uh, is going to be disappointed. Like you're having a hard time. Like a powerful calculator is dope, by the way. Like it's, let me not undersell the value of a powerful calculator, right? Like I, I can crunch way more numbers. I can, I can do a, like a lot more with a powerful calculator, but what a ca calculator can't do is think for me, right? Um, and uh, I, I know you have, you have talked a lot about like the, the ingressive AI and in a cautionary tone, like the ingress of AI into the yeah. UX discipline. Um, and do, so do you see an avenue for value that it can add? And and what are some safeguards that we put in place uh, so that it doesn't overreach um, organizationally, right? Like how do you as tell your team practically like, hey, man, you guys can use this stuff for XYZ use cases, but anything more than that, I'm not even going to look at it. Yeah, right? like, I love... I heard an example where somebody was talking about how they were using AI to support some of their writing, that they actually wrote something mm -hmm. and then they did some, I, I won't disclose everything they told me, but the person wrote something and, he used, and they used AI to, to do some things to help optimize what it was they were writing. I'm like, that's a phenomenal idea. You know, AI has its place. Uh, but all the fear mongering about how it's going to take jobs, I'm not going to take my job. You can't do what I do. AI simply can't do what I do. Uh, and a lot of the, I mean, that's simply based, that, that's basically it. You want to use it to help write a, a research script? Give it a go. Take a look at one that you wrote in the past and compare it. You're not going to see a lot of value add mm -hmm. from, from that perspective. And Again, going back to the laziness, the laziness that infects us in UX, those are the people who want to tap into what, what when it comes to AI doing our actual work. Um, you want to use AI to potentially analyze some research data, maybe a transcript? Um, maybe. Uh, is it going to replace what a human would do with it? No. It, it, especially if that person, because the people who are, who are screaming the loudest for AI are the people with five years and less of experience. The people who haven't done anything, who can't do anything, uh, who don't know how to do certain things. I can't, it can't help me. AI yeah. is not helping me with anything. I've seen AI process transcripts from research interviews. I, I've seen it. It didn't do everything I needed it to do. And now if I got to go behind it 
and make it actual, actually more usable and more valuable, that's a waste of my time. I could have just done that up front. Right. That's how I that's how I look at it. So I think it has its it has its place, and I'm all for people continuing to evaluate and things of that nature. But some of the things that people are doing, uh, and some people will try to displace UX people mm-hmm. with AI, and some people are going to become victimized mm-hmm. by that. And I'm not going to be out there trying to encourage that because so, it's yeah. counterproductive, especially for us, the baby in the room. Right. We don't need a robot coming along doing what we do. It really can't do what we do, which is why I say let's not even go that route. Let's find out where it's best used, continue to experiment. Didn't this thing just come on the scene a few months ago? The way that they're pushing it now? It wasn't this wasn't a high on the hype train. There was no AI hype train a year ago. Not like this. Chat GPT came out. Everybody started talking about what it's doing, what it can't do, yada yada yada. They're ignoring the fact that a lot of the information that that it that it spits out is crowdsourced. Yeah. In an age when misinformation rules, do you not understand the danger of that? Right. Uh, you know, so so this kind of thing, people need to be aware of that. And we need to we need to really caution ourselves mm. or take more caution when, when you're working with something that's okay, you take caution. Right. Why not uh, why not be cautious with something you don't understand yet? Right. I, so yeah. for me, right, like, uh, and this is perhaps the only avenue where I, I will, I will slightly uh, differ in opinion from you. Uh, mm-hmm. It's because uh, as creators of like a SaaS tool, right, like that's uh, that's trying to that's trying to provide research data. Like for us, we 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 are constantly faced with like the the north star of time to insight. Like, how do you go from like you know. 10 videos, each of them 30 minutes long of people interacting with a website or, or whatever it is, right? Like, how do you go from that to, hey, man, like, here's like five valuable moments, right? And, or, or like, here's here's like these things that are emblematic of like issues that I want to address. Now, mm-hmm. the classic way is like earlier used to be like you didn't even have like the, the video recordings. You would like just be yep. in person with someone or like on, on yeah. the other side of like a two-way emitter lab setting. And and a lot of the stuff is getting more and more remote. So now the idea is like, hey, we we fulfilled 80% of test results in two hours or less. So you get to specify your demographic, you get to order out a test, you get the videos back. But then you got to actually sit down and still watch these videos, right? So mm-hmm. where I think we, at least we see the value of AI coming in and, and we're actively working on baking this into our platform is, is it able to tell you like, hey man, here were all of these things, like here are all these moments in these videos that we think you should look at. It doesn't make do anything more prescriptive than that. I think the moment it starts getting prescriptive and, and you're like, I should listen to what the AI's opinion on my UX is, you're you're like off the deep end, right? But if it's if it's like if it's just, hey man, here's like 50 moments that I think are interesting. From these 500 minutes of video, here is like 50 minutes I think that you might want to look at. And then you get to come in and be like, well, this one, not really. This one, maybe. And this one, okay, yeah, this one's interesting, right? And you get to come in. I think adding it as a parsing layer to help you cut the clutter and cut the noise, mm-hmm. uh, it is there is utility in that, right? But, but I agree. Uh, beyond that, though, it, it becomes sad. When, I think the mistake, and we are very, we're trying to be ethical with it, right? Like we're trying to make sure that at every step, we let people know, like, dude, this thing is just telling you, here are some suggested moments you might want to look at. It's not like, I found everything wrong with your product. And like, you know, 
because uh, as compelling as that is as a marketing use case, it is it is snake oil sales. Like you know, that's not what it's doing. So, um, so yeah, like you know, we're trying to find like what is what is an ethical use case for AI and UX research, and that's sort of been my my north star. And and maybe yeah, maybe I don't differ from you in opinion. If, if you, you don't, okay, you don't. Right, cool. I think I think that anytime we're trying to examine, yeah. Uh, valuable use. I think that's always good. That's the academic mindset. Um, yeah. you, you're concerned about ethics. That's something a lot of people aren't doing. You're not trying to say, and this is what the lazy person's mindset is always set on microwave. Mm-hmm. All right, we're going to get these things all right. Now, and then they're not going to look at anything. And then they're just going to hand it over to somebody and say, here's the insights. And then they're going to, oh, my work is done. That's where there's a problem where people think this is going to do everything. No, it's going to help us. It's another tool. Yeah. Use the Fair. tool. <laughs> Use yeah. the tool. Find out what, and, and we're still dis- in discovery mode too. Mm-hmm. What works well, what doesn't. And as long as we're doing something like that, that's what the kind of thing we should be doing. These people are, some of these people that I'm not embracing, I, I was in a conversation and somebody said, I was doing my, my standard spiel. Let's be careful with AI. This is happening. That's happening. Let's be cautious. Um, and the person said, you know, as I heard you talk, everything, I did a post on this, everything you say, all I hear is fear. And, it, and the person went on, I said, is it, oh, and the person said, we need to, we need to people to be open-minded about AI. And I just hear you talking about fear. I let the person say, you know, stick their foot deeper into their mouth, you know, pretty good. So when they get, you know, get it down to the calf, it's going to be difficult for them to pull it back out. So I just let, let them talk and go away. Because I never said anything about not being open-minded. And then I, the person finished, and then they dropped the microphone. They had the smug look on their face. And I said, people are already open-minded to AI. Yeah. That's not what they I said. But if they're going to be balanced, you talked about them being academically minded and being considerate of everything. I'm telling the part that they haven't considered. And then they just, yeah. So now you got, I mean, now you can make a full decision. Right. So I think thematically, right, even our last episode, like we, we spoke with uh, Rahul Srinivas and he's like the principal pro- product manager for ServiceNow's platform AI. And overwhelmingly, the idea is like it's caution because you cannot put the genie back in the bottle. Right. With, with that, I think that's really the thing with AI. You cannot do it. Right. right. Once it's once it's like widespread, implemented, et cetera. So I think I think exercising caution over this thing is is the right way to do it because the value is obvious. Like it's immediate. Yeah. The value is like, holy shit, this thing is powerful. I don't think there's a single person that would dispute that, right? I think the people that are exercising, are calling for exercise of caution are the people that are like, we know this is powerful, but it can powerfully fuck things up too, right? And and like, you guys gotta, you gotta be careful. Uh, and I think that's that's like a very, like a very fair take. So yeah. we're, we're like near the end of our time, Darren. I'm gonna let I'm gonna tee it up to Tim to wrap up, but this has been a treat, man. It has it has. Thank you, Darren, so much for joining us. Um, as with so many of our guests, all I can say is we're gonna have to have you back for another episode sometime. Yeah. Those questions I was thinking, even from from what we've talked about here, that we didn't even get to bunch more that we'd love to hear your perspective on. Uh, but really, mm-hmm. thank you so much for for joining us. For like you said, I think this is like the third time you've come and spoke with us now at Trimata. Yeah, uh, and we really appreciate that. Really appreciate your expertise, uh, and, and I'm sure all of our audience uh, d- does as well. Uh, so before we wrap up, uh, is there anything uh, you want to take the opportunity to plug to let people know about uh, anything like that? 
Well, remember the podcast, the World of UX podcast. Uh, and if anybody ever has a topic they want to hear me talk about, uh, just shoot me a DM uh, on Twitter or via or via LinkedIn, uh, and we'll we'll put that on the on the uh, Airtable board for future coverage. Um, don't forget about the UX Chit Chat Hour now scheduled for the last Friday of each month, and so we're going to meet um, twelve fifteen p.m. Eastern time the Friday before Memorial Day in the U.S. Uh, we're going to be there, and it's going to be an extended episode because it is the holiday weekend. So we're probably going to be together for about three hours just oh, wow. talking about everything. And you just go from – it's not a Zoom room. You go from table to table talking about whatever is on your mind, and you have people all over the landscape of the world of UX there, uh, people you might not expect to have a conversation with will show up at the Chit Chat Hour, and you get to talk to them. Uh, in, in a great dynamic type of a situation, coffee house style chit chat is what we call it. So those are the two things I wanted to to mention to everybody today. Love it, fantastic. Um, and and uh, you know, just lastly, we'll be back with another episode of Redesign Growth next Friday, same time, same place. I uh, hope you'll all tune in again. Have a great Friday and have a great weekend, everyone. Thank you, everybody. Bye bye, everybody.